0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Ashley. Can everyone hear me okay? All right, great. Good afternoon. Really proud uh, and honored to be here. Is this too loud? On behalf of the International Pelvic Pain Society, um, and happy that you made it here this afternoon for us to talk a little bit more specifically on musculoskeletal causes of pelvic pain, which um, although I think um, at least pelvic floor myofascial pain is growing as it relates to the concept behind chronic pelvic pain, there are many things that are often forgotten within the musculoskeletal pelvis that I'm hoping we can review today and open your world as you see patients with pelvic pain. Um, These are my disclosures. Uh, We do have some research funding from the NIDDK, and I'm an up-to-date editor, and the current president of the International Pelvic Pain Society. And I want to acknowledge today my partner um, in physical medicine and rehabilitation, Dr. Stacy Bennis. And I should mention that I am a physiatrist. I don't know if there's any physiatrists in the room, but physical medicine and rehabilitation is my specialty. But I'm actually housed within obstetrics and gynecology at my university, which has really been great, because I can interact very closely with gynecology and Uro-gynecology as we take care of patients with pelvic pain. So today, our objectives are really to define what pelvic girdle pain is, and that actually equals musculoskeletal pain. And we'll talk about how that differs from other diagnoses of pelvic pain. We'll go through the elements of a history and physical exam that can really help you out as you're making a musculoskeletal pelvic pain diagnosis. We'll identify the principles underlying the various treatments to manage pelvic pain. And then you'll see I've sprinkled in different research that we've done and others have done to actually substantiate that musculoskeletal pain, pelvic pain is a real thing. Um, This is a picture that we often show within the IPPS um, that not only speaks to the chronic overlapping pain comorbidities that you heard about this morning with Dr. Asani, but how there are there are basically overlapping specialties that take care of patients with pelvic pain, and I would say that physical medicine, my my field, there are very few of us that do, and those who do are more uh, interested in kind of external, if you will, pelvic pain or kind of sacroiliac joint pain. And so I'm working hard, even with my within my own field, to get patients and um, other providers to understand that there really is overlap. We all have economic pressure as we take care of these patients. We don't have a lot of time. We feel inadequately trained, not only to take care of pain patients, but pelvic pain especially. And then we're building our evidence, but in, you know, even just 10 years ago, a lot of lack of evidence for effective treatments. So this is the definition for chronic pelvic pain from obstetrics and gynecology. And it's defined as non-cyclic pain of six or more menstruation, that localizes to the anatomic pelvis. It can be anterior at the anterior abdominal wall at or below the umbilicus, or actually, interestingly, in the region of the lumbo-sacral spine or the buttock. So to me, that kind of pulls in musculoskeletal immediately. Um, to meet the criteria, the pain should be severe enough to cause some level of disability. And then what we know from the old days is that we talked about pelvic pain, we didn't even say if it was anterior or posterior, we just lumped it into one big category. But my colleagues in gynecology, when they're speaking often of pelvic pain, they're talking about visceral causes, some of the things we heard about this morning. Whereas in my field, when we talk about pelvic girdle pain, that's musculoskeletal. But we all come together to take care of the patient, hopefully in a more comprehensive way. This is a nice chart from a paper in 2005 that really kind of took us through the differential diagnosis of patients with chronic pelvic pain. And you can see under musculoskeletal, the main thing that was always discussed then was myofascial pain pain of different muscle groups that not only are in the buttock region, but also the pelvic floor. There was a little discussion back then about how nerve entrapment might influence muscular structures, and then a little discussion about how the lumbar spine might also influence. But what I'll show you is that that list has now exceeded our expectations in terms of the things we really need to think about. So how do we define pelvic girdle pain? Well, Dr. Vleming in 2008 wrote a really nice paper that described that this is pain actually experienced between the posterior iliac crest. So in this region here, let's see if I can use this. Um, Posterior iliac crest down to the gluteal fold, but mainly in the region of the sacroiliac joint. It may actually include uh, pain in the pubic symphysis, but posterior pelvic girdle pain is way more common than anterior um, pain can radiate when you have pelvic girdle pain. That's what confuses us. It can radiate into the posterior thigh. But the thing that's most important if you're caring for a patient and trying to figure out if it's musculoskeletal is the question just generally, does movement change the pain? So we know these patients have a capacity that is decreased when they're standing, walking and sitting. They talk about when I go from a sit to a stand position, I have more pain. So make sure you're asking those questions about movement. So let's talk through some of the anatomy of the musculoskeletal pelvis. This is a nice AP view of the bony pelvis. And what I just wanna highlight is how close the lumbar spine is as it relates to the pelvis itself. We know the sacrum is included within the pelvic girdle. Sacroiliac joints, as I already mentioned, very important. Pubic symphysis, a highlight in pelvic girdle pain. But the hip joints themselves, and there's a lot of debate looking at research, if the hip is actually dysplastic, is that a cause of pelvic girdle pain? Also, the pelvis is stabilized by multiple ligamentous structures, if you remember from the old days. And those structures are throughout the bony pelvis. They cover the anterior pelvis beautifully. This is the anterior longitudinal ligament, across the anterior aspect of the SI joint, diffusely across the pubic symphysis and the hip joint itself. And then if you really look posteriorly, even more heavily supported by ligamentous structures. And in fact, the deep one, if you remember, the interosseous sacroiliac ligament is considered the strongest ligament in the body. So yes, it's important, the bony structures, but the ligamentous structures are probably equally as important as it relates to our understanding. So the main joints that we want to highlight, I think it's worthy of talking through what is the anatomy The sacroiliac joint has obviously both iliac crest as a part of it and the sacrum itself. It is a true synovial joint. On the sacral side, there's hyaline cartilage. On the iliac side, there's fibrocartilage, and that's probably why this joint doesn't move as well as other joints within the body. The articulation is supported by a capsule, those ligamentous structures that I showed you, and also muscles, and its primary innervation, interestingly, is S1. So if you have a patient who happens to have a herniated disc and an S1 radiculopathy, that actually might influence the pelvic girdle in a negative way. The pubic symphysis, in contrast, is a non-synovial joint. Um, There is an intrapubic disc that lies between thin layers of hyaline cartilage, though, that is uh, within the joint itself. And again, surrounded by ligamentous structures, fascial connections that connect upwards towards the rectus abdominis, remember our six-pack muscles, um, and this joint is actually innervated by both the pudendal nerve and the genital femoral nerve, which is a common misconception, I think, about that joint and important to point out. And as we think about muscles, I, I guess I want all of us to be a little bit broader in our musculoskeletal thinking, not just thinking myofascial could be pelvic floor or piriformis, the poor piriformis that always gets blamed for butt pain. Because if you remember, there's lots of different layers of muscle. Um, Interestingly, none of these muscles actually attach directly to the SI joint, but they do have direct connections to those ligamentous structures and also the capsule itself particularly the rotators and the extensors. And that's why we often see in pelvic pain the obturator internus, which if you recall is an external rotator of the hip, and the piriformis being concomitantly involved in patients who present with uh, pelvic floor myofascial pain. These muscles are really key in that they absorb forces when we move. So that's why there's multiple layers and multiple levels of support uh, to the pelvic girdle. So the pelvic floor, a very essential part of the pelvic girdle, my colleagues in Europe who first defined pelvic girdle pain didn't even talk about these muscles. The first people to talk about them were urogynecologists and gynecologists as it relates to their importance. We know there are two layers of muscle. We have the urogenital diaphragm or the superficial layer comprised of ischiocavernosis, bubble spongiosis, and transverse perineal muscles, and then the deep layer, levator ani. And we spend a lot of time looking at the levator ani, which is, if you remember, puborectalis, pubococcygeus, and iliococcygeus. But, you know, really, all these muscles function as a whole, and they are mainly comprised of slow-twitch fibers because they are muscles that are always contracted at a baseline level to maintain continence. There's a small component of that muscular support that is fast twitch, so when I cough, sneeze or jump, those fast twitch fibers kick in to help protect against incontinence. That's why the muscles are so important, obviously, obviously as it relates to continence, um, but they also support the pelvic viscera and our muscles involved in sexual appreciation, muscles that can be pain generators like anything else, and what we call the floor of the core. And this is a nice picture kind of just from Natter showing how those muscles kind of have to bear the weight of the entire core itself. And there's been quite a bit of research looking at this. These are some early papers that I loved that really showed, and Sapsford did this work, that the pelvic floor muscles actually co-activate with abdominal and other core muscles during voluntary exercise to maintain our lumbopelvic stability. And interestingly, when we sit more upright and neutral spine, we can activate those muscles better. And then an earlier study in the Netherlands looked at, okay, in postpartum women, when they have lumbopelvic pain, 50% of them don't fire that part of their core well. So um, early work actually showed us the importance of these muscles as it relates to the overall core. And these other papers are great. I'm spending a lot of time in my research trying to understand kind of what connects the uh, sacroiliac joint and the pelvic floor muscles, and this is a great paper where they took male and female cadavers, they removed the pelvic floor muscles, and then they replaced it with springs. And only in the female cadavers were they able to show when they tightened those springs, it actually stiffened the sacroiliac joint. So some early work to support the idea that not only are they core muscles, but they're actually providing some stability or support to the sacroiliac joints. And so I love this picture too, because it just really shows, well, what connects that anterior pelvis to the posterior pelvis? Well, it's the pelvic floor muscles. And they're named for that connection. So the pubococcygeus is named for its anterior to posterior attachment. So try to remember, we cannot just think of the pelvis only in one compartment, but but multiple as we're looking at the pelvic girdle. And we know that pubococcygeus that I mentioned from our colleagues at University of Michigan, Dr. Delancey, these muscles, and this depicts, so this is the pubic symphysis. This is representing um, the, the vagina itself and the fetal head at the time of labor and delivery and what happens to the muscles. Um, and what they showed through a biomechanical model is actually the pubococcygeus has to stretch three times its normal length to accommodate a baby's head. And this is just in a natural delivery. And then what they subsequently showed was as a result of that, these muscles tear. And these are different from our third and fourth degree tears that occur. These are um, actually what they call levator avulsion. And so you can see this is an MRI, uh, pubic body, urethra, vagina, rectum. This is showing that pubococcygeus, or what's called the levator plate, intact. And on the right, this is a complete avulsion of both pubococcygeus muscles that occurred in a first-time mom. And they actually showed that this happens either partially, completely, unilaterally, or bilaterally 20% of the time in first-time mothers. So the muscles do take a hit as it relates to labor and delivery. And and that hit persists. So we don't repair that um, surgically, to my knowledge. There's um, a persistent, and we'll get into this a little bit more, Rectus abdominis, diastasis, or split of the muscle. A lot of research going on in this field to understand how it relates to pelvic girdle pain. We have persistent scar, whether it's C-section scar, uh, perineal scar that interferes with the fascial support of the muscles. And then as a result, we have what we call in rehabilitation impaired load transfer. Those muscles can't activate, so they can't do their normal job. Um, and then, on top of it, with breastfeeding, we have bad posture, and we do all kinds of bad child care things that are you know sort of poor uh, biomechanics so um So what are some other mechanisms of injury, though, separate from pregnancy and childbirth? So um, any excessive force can produce an injury, and some of those are commonly seen in jumping and landing sports, like gymnastics or tennis, actually. This is a common uh, sporting activity that can cause SI joint pain. We also see it in a dashboard injury, in a motor vehicle accident, or with a blocked kick that can occur in a variety of sports. Um, Secondarily, we see that SI joint pain or that posterior pelvic girdle pain can happen in patients who have leg length discrepancies because it throws off the pelvic symmetry, scoliosis, which would make sense, and how that thus impairs the neuromuscular balance. And we also see in patients who have had prior lumbar fusion or sacroiliac joint fusion abnormalities either above or below the fusion or on the contralateral side. Um, And then in general, kind of separate from pregnancy, who else gets pelvic girdle pain? Well, adolescents do. And scoliosis is actually fairly common in the adolescent population. Also adolescents, particularly young female athletes, and it's kind of beyond the scope of this lecture, but they are prone to stress fractures if they do have the female athlete triad. So if you recall, those are the young women who don't have their periods because they're exercising so much and they have relative osteopenia or porosis, so they can develop a stress fracture. They're also more prone to getting apophysial avulsion injuries in other muscles within the pelvis. Um, and then we also think about patients or people who have rheumatologic or inflammatory arthropathy, spondyloarthropathies in particular. So I'll show you some nice pictures of that. Patients with ankylosing spondylitis, remember, inflammatory bowel disease, Reiter's syndrome or reactive arthritis, or even psoriatic arthritis that's not listed here. Those patients have true inflammatory disease in their sacroiliac joints. And then our elderly population. Patients who are not getting better, who have chronic back pain, it's actually fairly common that they have sacral insufficiency fractures as a result. Um, It's more common in women. Women actually have more osteoarthritis that affects their pelvic girdle. And we know as we age, there are tumors or different cancer types that actually impact the pelvis. Um, So we see, uh, unfortunately, there are times I have diagnosed metastatic disease uh, in patients who might present with just back pain or hip pain, but have had a prior history of breast cancer, for example. So if we look at the epidemiology, I wanted to make sure we understood that the numbers are kind of similar. Um, SI joint pain in the non-pregnant state, prevalence is about 13 to 25% of all people who present with low back pain, which is pretty high. And it does affect females more commonly, but both genders can get SI joint pain. And it is more commonly seen in sedentary and obese individuals in addition to some of the other populations I talked to you about. And these are some of the slides from last year when we talked about pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain. But if you look at the number, the kind of the golden number of how common this is, no matter what population um, we're talking about, pregnant or non pregnant, about 20% of individuals. And if you add the lumbar spine to the pelvic girdle in terms of the diagnosis, it's even higher. And one of the things that I like to point out is that sadly, when women have uh, pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy, about 25% of them go on to chronic postpartum pelvic girdle pain. And those tend to be the women, as you would imagine, that have more severe pain during pregnancy, more diffuse pain. Interestingly, if they've had a cesarean section, they're more likely to have persistent pain. And there was a lot of debate when I was training about does breastfeeding perpetuate pelvic girdle pain, and there was a large retrospective study of 10,000 women that showed no. It had no influence, actually, on the persistence of pelvic girdle pain. But the sad thing is 20% of women with severe pain avoided a future pregnancy due to their low back or pelvic girdle pain, so that's obviously something we want to avoid. Um, And a huge debate, so we know relaxin kicks in during pregnancy, relaxin causes ligamentous laxity, almost puts us in this hormonal milieu that predisposes an individual to a musculoskeletal injury, but the studies have shown there's low evidence for the association of pelvic girdle pain and relaxin levels themselves. So I sort of think of it as you're in this hormonal milieu, you're prone to a sports injury, if you will, you have an inflammatory response, so similar to our athletes, actually. And these natural musculoskeletal changes happen in pregnancy. You see this increased lumbar lordosis, a shift in our center of gravity. The the abdominal muscles have to really stretch and they have to overactivate to make up for what's going on in the lumbar spine. And the pelvic floor muscles have to do like resisted weight training almost the entire time someone is pregnant. So um, important changes that are occurring. So when we're thinking through our differential diagnosis for musculoskeletal pain, yes, muscle and fascial issues top the list with pelvic floor myofascial pain being one of the more common things we see, especially in that chronic overlapping uh, pain syndrome group that we were talking about. But you can have myofascial pain, like we discussed in other muscles. We're gonna hear from Dr. Lamvu about how really maybe vaginismus is just on the continuum of pelvic floor myofascial pain and dysfunction. But hopefully I'm introducing to you there are lots of other skeletal and joint causes of musculoskeletal pelvic pain. We already mentioned, obviously, SI joint um, and pelvic insufficiency fractures, but coccydynia, anything going on in the lumbar, spine, or hip can create pain in this region. We see L5 radiculopathy, for example, that creates buttock pain, and that also is a cause of pelvic girdle pain. And this overlap, as we previously discussed, with visceral somatic. So let's talk about pelvic floor myofascial pain. How common is it? It's really interesting when I reviewed these papers to see how it's changed over time. I think we're becoming more aware of making this diagnosis, but uh, my colleague Frank Tu did a really great retrospective study of over 900 women, and even back then they found those women presenting to a gynecology clinic, 22% of them had levator or pelvic floor myofascial pain and 14% had uh, piriformis myofascial pain. In another study by Adams, it was a urogyne population that just came with pelvic floor disorders, and 24% of that group had pelvic floor myofascial pain. And in our own data that we literally just published a few weeks ago in over 300 women, perhaps some of the influence of me being in that clinic, but we found 61% of our chronic pelvic pain population had the diagnosis of pelvic floor myofascial pain, and separate from that, an additional 24% had another musculoskeletal diagnosis. So Really, really common um, and hopefully uh, an easy target in a way for us to treat. The problem is that we have mainly subjective measures for diagnosing this. Patient kind of, you have to ask, do you have vaginal pain? Do you have rectal pain? If you say pelvis, they actually might not really know what you mean. Uh, That means different things to patients, to providers and others. We use obviously a pain diagram, but that includes the perineum, so they can actually circle the areas. We do a detailed pelvic floor muscle exam, both vaginally and rectally, but we have no good validated objective measures for making this diagnosis. I'll show you a few tools that have been used in research, but nothing is out there yet clinically for us to use as just a nice measure. We need, if you will, an EKG for the pelvic floor. Um, So in pregnancy, at least, they come more commonly in second trimester. I already mentioned it's this pain with transitional motion. You'll see them kind of standing off their affected uh, side or sitting off their affected side, and they'll tell you they have radiating leg pain. But what I talked about last year is that true sciatic neuropathy in pregnancy is actually very rare and also in postpartum population, less than 1% in a large study done in the 90s of over 900 women. This is a great questionnaire. Um, Dr. Stuge from Norway actually made this questionnaire. It's specific to women who have pelvic girdle pain. There are, um, items that are related to mainly activity and participation in activities and bodily somatic symptoms, and it's been shown to be highly reliable, valid, and feasible, not only in research but in the clinic. So it's a great uh, tool for us to be using if we're trying to get more detail on movement limitations. So I wanted to make sure you knew about that, and they have great uh, scoring systems for us to tell what's significant. If you send a patient to physical therapy and you look pre and post What is the change? What is the minimally important change for us to consider that something is working? So uh, this is very recent and very helpful. Um, We already talked about pelvic function as it relates to the pelvic floor muscles, but I wanted to bring up, and this is a nice slide from my partner, just how it also is a stable base for what's called the head, arm, and trunk complex. And it actually, the pelvis transmit and absorbs forces to and from the upper and lower extremities. It has a really important role. Um, it rotates during walking to create a rhythmic pelvic swing, sort of for a smooth transition of our movement, and is a broad area for muscle attachments. So it's kind of the, the base of support for all of our motion. Um, and yes, there is range of motion to the pelvis. Not a lot, but there is some. And what um, we had focused on a lot even 20 years ago was that pelvic motion. And some of you in the room may even know these terms of anterior and posterior, lateral tilt, forward um, and backward rotation. Um, We know there are seven joints that control that pelvic motion, but let me show you some pictures because I think it's easier to see. When we assess pelvic alignment, we, we want to see this, a neutral position, because we know that muscles are activated best in that position, but we often see, especially with tight hip flexors and other abnormalities, an anterior pelvic tilt or a posterior pelvic tilt. We see things like a lateral tilt. You can see this just sliding downwards. And then this is a little tougher to see, but one side of the pelvis is rotated anteriorly and the other side is rotated posteriorly on that picture. When you're examining a patient, you actually need to touch them, palpate their iliac crest. To find the uh, sacroiliac joint, you follow the iliac crest down to the posterior superior iliac spine. And you know if you can see the sacral dimple, you know you're there. And you can actually feel the bony prominence and that's the region where you palpate. Um, But let's keep in mind, we see these tilts and we see this asymmetry all the time. And we describe that as dysfunction, which is defined as an abnormality or an impairment of function in a certain organ system or bodily system. But that's different from pain. And pain is actually physical suffering or discomfort that's caused by an illness or injury of a particular musculoskeletal structure. This seems very basic, but bear with me because it'll make more sense. So sacroiliac joint pain does not necessarily equal sacroiliac joint function, um, dysfunction. So we know the joint is a structure that can be a source of pain, but it's also a a load-transferring mechanical junction. And so you can see abnormalities or that asymmetry that I talked about. And it's really controversial. Lots of people have spent a very long time looking at if a joint is hyper or hypomobile, is someone more likely to have pain. And unfortunately, the studies have not shown differences in symptomatic versus asymptomatic patients. And our ability to measure it is not reliable or valid. So you see physical therapists, I used to do this as a a physiatrist. I spent a lot of time looking at motion. This is an example of a motion test called Jalais test. Uh, But we tend not to do it anymore because of that lack of evidence that it equates to pain. So let me show you some of the tests. So if you were going to actually make the diagnosis of SI joint pain, the International Association for the Study of Pain actually has defined it. You have to have pain in that region. You have to do very specific clinical provocative tests to prove that they have pain there. But the gold standard is actually a sacroiliac joint injection that's image-guided, either by fluoroscopy or ultrasound. And so these are some of the tests. Um, Laslett did a really nice paper looking at them. I'll show you some pictures, but a list of tests that you can do. And what we know is if you have, you have to do at least three, because you have to have three, greater or equal to three positive tests to make the clinical diagnosis of SI joint pain. The sensitivity for that is 91%, and specificity 78%, so pretty good. And if you have a pregnant patient, you're even more likely to make the diagnosis. So let me show you some pictures. If you had to pick one test, this tops the list in terms of sensitivity and specificity called the posterior pelvic pain provocation test, also known as the AP glide or the thigh thrust. I'm taking the patient's right hip, I'm pushing down anterior and posterior. Imagine I'm putting pressure right through that sacroiliac joint on the patient's right side. Patient would say it's painful and that's a positive test. The one on the left is the Patrick's Faber test, also called Fabers, forced Fabers, lots of different names for it. Patient can complain of pain in the symphysis, the hip, or the SI joint. Modified Trendelenburg is not pictured here, but very simply, patient stands on one leg, and she or he says that her pubic symphysis hurts. Then we do a couple palpation tests. These are the ones that have been shown to be validated in pelvic girdle pain. I already talked about how you find the SI joint and press just below the posterior superior iliac spine to, um, to see if there's tenderness there. And then the pubic symphysis itself. And then the active straight leg raises a test of function that's been highly validated with patients who have pelvic girdle pain. So she lifts up her leg, she says it's difficult. I give her some stability and she says it's easier. So that's also a really nice test to do in the setting of pelvic girdle pain. A common thing that you're also seeing many of us in the musculoskeletal we're doing is assessing for a diastasis recti or a split of the abdominal muscles. Um, You basically have the patient just lie flat, palpate before she contracts. It's most commonly felt just at or above the umbilicus. And then you have her do a little abdominal crunch and you can feel your hand go right into the muscle bellies there. Um, So you can easily feel that split there are courses on this topic Um, huge body of literature and a big debate Um, and i I will make sure that you get these updated slides but basically we see it commonly in pregnancy whoops Um, actually in most everyone who's pregnant we see it everyone who's postpartum we see it in the old days we spent a lot of time saying oh if it's really big it's probably a reason for your pelvic girdle pain but we're not sure anymore we do know that women who are more fit um, tend to have less of these, and we also know that it partially resolves, but usually sticks around for a while, especially if you've had repetitive C-section. Um, physical therapy, hotly debated Of if this, we, think, we believe it helps. We think the best is the drawing-in maneuver where we're activating the transversus abdominis. However, um, crunches, in the old days, we're told don't do crunches, it can make it worse, but newer data is suggesting that may not be true at this stage, so. Um, Now, if we want to go internal and look at the pelvic floor muscles, as we previously described, and we'll hear a little bit more in detail about how to do that this afternoon, the main thing we're doing in a gloved exam is assessing for tenderness of the muscles. We go throughout the pelvic clock to describe where we feel that tenderness, the quality and coordination of the contraction and the relaxation, and then we can use a strength scale called the modified Oxford scale to describe how strong they are. We know just in general that pain patients, pelvic pain patients, have poor relaxation and diffuse tenderness, so that's the common finding. In this study that we did, we took women who came through our urogyne clinic to determine the frequency of pelvic floor myofascial pain. These numbers were actually staggering. And those women who also complained of lumbar and pelvic girdle, 180 women, 83% of them who reported low back and or pelvic girdle pain also reported vaginal pain. We're, we've presented this at the International Pelvic Pain Society and have a paper coming out. But on exam, 96%, had pelvic floor myofascial pain. And I didn't do these exams. The urogynecologist did. So, um, and just even more evidence. We did this paper a long time ago where we were blinded to if the patient had pain or not because some people said, oh, Colleen, you're just, you're trying to find pain. You know, it must be just what you're doing. And, um, but actually we found when we were blinded to pain that the women who complained of pain had pelvic floor muscle tenderness. And they also, and here's the, the reference, they also had multiple abnormal musculoskeletal findings and some of those other tests that I showed you. This is a study that I did in pregnancy, where we took women who had sacroiliac joint pain, who were pregnant, that's the PGP part, 25 women, and then 26 women who were pregnant and had no pain. And I did a pelvic floor muscle exam on them. And what I found is that all of the women who had uh, pelvic girdle pain had pelvic floor muscle tenderness that was diffuse and bilateral. And we did not see that in pregnant women. So the, you know, the criticism I always had in the past was just, uh, you're always gonna find pain on vaginal exam in pregnancy. And indeed, um, we did not. And obviously this needs to be validated with more objective measures, but it was very interesting. We did another study looking at um, postpartum pelvic girdle pain and perineal pain and found that the women who had it, as you would imagine, had more sexual dysfunction and they also were more depressed. So we were looking at other measures to substantiate that musculoskeletal pelvic pain is actually leading to the same kinds of things we're seeing in chronic pelvic pain in general. And then we made this device in the early uh, 2000s, and this is the device here. It's a pressure algometer that we could wear on the tip of our finger um, and actually measure what we call pain pressure threshold, kind of how we would in a fibromyalgia patient. And the purpose of this study was to just examine the pain pressure thresholds in women with and without pain, our first opportunity to really objectify uh, this tenderness. And we did find that the Women with pain did not tolerate pressure like the women who didn't have pain. Everyone has a threshold, but the threshold for the pain patient is way lower. They cannot tolerate the pressure, and it was beautiful because we finally had an objective measure looking at that. Um, Even after we controlled for a patient's age and menopausal status, that significance level persisted. And then we made this new device, which we're still working with, um, but actually not only does it measure that pressure, but it's looking at EMG. So we want to understand that concept, the muscles aren't contracting and relaxing correctly. Can we measure it? And so there are multiple ways we're trying to do this in research, but I wanted to point that out. We need to come up with a more objective measure. So what kind of imaging should we do in musculoskeletal pelvic pain? Well, if a patient has had trauma, you definitely want to think about plain radiographs. This is a picture of a postpartum patient with a pubic symphysis separation at the top. Uh, This is a patient with osteoarthritis of the pubic symphysis called osteitis pubis. Almost always I found a patient when they have this, it leads to this like we see in other musculoskeletal injuries. But a nice plain view of the pelvis can just kind of screen um, for sacroiliitis can also screen for hip osteoarthritis and even get um, a little bit of the lumbar spine to give us a hint of what's going on there. We certainly get x-rays in patients who complain of coccidinia when they come to us with pelvic girdle pain. We can uh, diagnose dislocation and then also fracture. But the more common thing is that they tend to have just tenderness of the tailbone and we find that more when we do a pelvic floor muscle examination. And then MRI is probably our best test. MRI can look at all different causes uh, for musculoskeletal pelvic girdle pain, and I just want to just highlight some of them. So this is a picture of a sacral stress fracture. This was a postpartum patient with sacroiliac joint pain who was not getting better, and we did it, we imaged her and found that she had this. This is a pregnant patient actually with a herniated disc. You can see as you go down in this T2-weighted image, see how the whiteness of the disc is lost and it actually is going into the spinal canal. This is another patient who um, was not pregnant or postpartum but had anterior pain that was not getting better and she was found to have an inferior pubic ramus stress fracture. And then this is a patient who actually had a tendinopathy. Um, So MRI will also diagnose tendinitis or tendinopathy, which is very, very interesting because we get patients who have no pain and we see some of that. So kind of hotly debated in the musculoskeletal world. This is a condition called transient osteoporosis of pregnancy and why people are thinking that we're seeing more um, hip stress fractures and then also sacral stress fractures. We thought in the old days it was rare in third trimester, but we're diagnosing it more and more. And you can really see on MRI how the femoral uh, head and neck have significant edema that can predispose to stress fracture. We're using musculoskeletal ultrasound uh, quite a bit in my field, not as much in the pelvic girdle, but here's an opportunity for us. Looking at the pubic symphysis, we can actually measure the width of the symphysis. We can prove to patients that there's not a separation if there hasn't been trauma. So ultrasound could be a nice way for us to make uh, the diagnosis in a pelvic girdle pain patient. Um, I wanted to show you some pictures. Remember ankylosing spondylitis or that bamboo spine where they also get the sacroiliitis? Um, the sacroiliitis is characterized by a disease in the inferior or anterior portion of the joint. It's bilateral, it's symmetric, it's on the sacral side and the iliac side, and the joint erodes. So it's very different than just an SI joint pain patient that has a normal x-ray, okay? And we know with age, um, that joint starts to fuse. And so we think maybe that's why we see more osteoarthritis over time. This is a condition I just wanted to point out because some of you may get reports that describe this. Osteitis condesans ilii, which is thought to be a benign condition. Really, no one knows why women have it more commonly. But the thought is that maybe there's asymmetry that needs to abnormal loading, especially of the iliac side, and you tend to get this sclerosis at the iliac side. Um, but it spares the joint itself. So you can see it over here. The joint itself looks pristine, but you can see those uh, sort of um, loading changes that occur on the iliac side. Not a lot to do for it, but a lot of debate about if it's really a pain generator or not. And then I take care of, it seems like lately, a lot of pelvic fracture patients. So I just wanted to bring this up. There's very little data on this, but all our ortho colleagues are quite familiar with this. They, they um, stabilize the pelvis after trauma. Uh, but patients can have persistent pelvic girdle pain even after fractures have healed. And we believe it has to do with how, like, a. Fracture of this type would actually create an abnormal pelvic floor muscle response leading to myofascial pain. So keep that in mind uh, with your patients who have fracture. Um, And then this is a CT imaging. I think we're using it less and less uh, to diagnose a sacral insufficiency fracture. I believe this was a patient that could not get MR imaging because she had a pacemaker. Um, But an older patient, someone with osteoporosis or a history of chronic steroid use, you would want to consider uh, this in someone who has persistent low back or sacral pain. So let's talk a little bit about some treatments. So there's a big debate. Remember, I was talking about dysfunction. And so if you mobilize the joint, do patients get better? And there's really not that many studies. This is a randomized controlled trial that looked at just exercise, exercise plus mobilization, and then mobilization alone, and actually showed that exercise and mobilization both seem to be effective for the reduction of pain. Another study just looked at 17 women compared to controls and found that mobilization helped. But a systematic review that was fairly well done said that you kind of have to combine everything. So if you just manipulate or mobilize without doing any active exercise focused on the core in terms of stability, then probably you're not gonna make the same amount of gain. And pelvic floor physical therapy, uh, to treat that pelvic floor myofascial pain, is there evidence? So yes, there was an early paper that was published in 2001. It was actually done in a painful bladder population and in women with um, urgency and frequency. And they found significant reduction, interestingly, in their pain as well as their symptoms of urgency frequency. It was a prospective cohort study. Another study looked at these same patients who have chronic bladder pain, 80% of them seek out physical therapy. So there's something to it. And then this was really the hallmark study that was funded by the NIH, um, and Loyola was involved. We were the lead. This is uh, my colleague, a different Dr. Fitzgerald, that was the lead author in this study. They first were criticized to say, how could you ever do a randomized controlled trial and they used um, global massage as the sham, or sort of the control group, if you will, the positive control, and what they found is that they could randomize patients successfully. They could adhere to a really good protocol, um, so that was the first paper, and then the second paper that you can see here in 2012 looked at an 81 women who were either randomized to global massage or internal physical therapy, The women who had internal physical therapy responded significantly more in terms of the global response assessment. Actually, 59% of them had improvement in their pain. And the only side effect that they had was a slight um, transient increase in their pain. But that was only seen in a small proportion of the patients. So, This is kind of a landmark study that really supports pelvic floor physical therapy. And we apply it to pretty much anyone who has pelvic floor myofascial pain. I was asked this question earlier, so can I just tell a patient to do kegels and will they get better? And so hopefully I drove this home last year, but, but the answer is no. First of all, most patients don't know how to activate their pelvic floor correctly at all. They bear down instead of contract. Um, and we also know that in pain patients, just telling them to do their kegels will actually make them worse. And I like to tell patients, it's almost like if you have a biceps injury, you're not gonna grab a 50 pound weight and start working out your biceps, right? You're gonna relax it, you're gonna get back to your normal range of motion, you're gonna gradually increase that range of motion, and then you're gonna move to strength. So think about that as it relates to the pelvic floor, it's no different, okay? So the focus in physical therapy is on relaxation, control, and progression to strengthening. Does that make sense? And as it relates to pregnancy, this was a nice systematic review um, that looked at just all the different treatments for pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy. Interestingly, acupuncture had very strong evidence. I'm going to show you another paper um, that supported that, a randomized controlled trial. Pelvic belts, I'll show you some pictures of those, some fairly strong evidence. But if you kind of look at the PT, just general exercise, stabilizing exercises, we have some work to do as it relates to uh, proving that physical therapy overall helps with pelvic girdle pain. This is the sacroiliac joint belt. Uh, We believe that this belt provides a sense of stability, uh, but doesn't really provides significant stability. It helps uh, with motor control, so it helps people kind of remember what muscles to fire and how to move appropriately. But studies have found benefit for short-term use of these belts with improvement in pain and function compared to exercise or no intervention, and they are cost-effective. So this belt is just one example. I believe it's $35 on Amazon. So um, these are nice options, not only for pregnant and postpartum patients, but also for the non-pregnant population. Um, A lot of you hear a lot of this, heat, cold, what should I use, should I use TENS, unit, electrical stimulation, no evidence, no evidence at all. But we are starting a study, we just got an IRB approved to look at ice. I have a a feeling in pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, I hypothesize that ice will work better than heat. Um, And for pregnancy-related, there's no uh, massage data, and I just showed you that paper that showed massage doesn't help that much in chronic pelvic pain either. Um, and just in general, we, there are not, there's not a single pain medication study that's uh, been done, randomized controlled trial in pregnancy and postpartum. There's lacking, lacking across the board evidence for medication use in pelvic girdle pain. NSAIDs we know can't be used in pregnancy, but ibuprofen can be used postpartum. Muscle relaxants, they're very similar to some of the other things you've heard and seen about today, but not, not a lot of evidence to support their use in pelvic girdle pain. Um, we, we like lidocaine patches or salon pods. Those types of things can just take the edge off. Steroids can be helpful, particularly if a patient uh, has degenerative disc disease or some herniated disc. Um, now, I wanted to bring up some of the other medical pelvic floor treatments, because there's been kind of a rage as it relates to vaginal Valium. Valium being you know, obviously an anxiolytic, but a true muscle relaxant. In rehabilitation, we use it for patients who have spasticity, for example. So um, some folks had the good idea that if we made it into a compounded suppository, it would likely help with pelvic floor myofascial pain. And the early papers suggested it, but those early papers were retrospective and limited. Um, The Hallmark paper that was just published last year was a randomized controlled trial done by Holland that compared um, vaginal diazepam, 10 milligrams at night, to a placebo, real vaginal placebo, and there was no difference in terms of uh, improvements. Both pain improved both groups significantly but no significant uh, difference between the groups and then all these compounds no data as it relates to musculoskeletal pain so just be wary of that i mean people are trying everything to feel better but we really don't have good research to support their use at least in musculoskeletal pelvic pain Um, a lot being done in the musculoskeletal world in the way of injections Um, one paper zarab from 2015 looked at injecting into the muscles themselves Um, steroid plus lidocaine compared to physical therapy and found no difference between the groups. A follow-up paper showed some improvement with lidocaine injections. Sacroiliac joint injections, I'll show you a separate slide, widely used not only for diagnostic, but therapeutic purposes. Nerve blocks, lacking in evidence here uh, for us as it relates to pelvic girdle pain. But mounting evidence that's suggesting that botulinum toxin into the pelvic floor muscles actually may have significant improvement for our patients and a more lasting improvement. Um, The sacroiliac joint injections have to be, as we previously mentioned, done fluoroscopically. Uh, adverse events are pretty minimal, and in this systematic review, they provide short but not long-term relief. So um, same is true for this paper we did on pubic symphysis injections. Yes, it's diagnostic, but no, it's not helpful in terms of therapeutic benefit, and this is a very small end size, but limited data on pubic symphysis injections. And then I just wanted to briefly mention, and then hopefully we can take some questions, some of the other things that are going on in terms of treatment for musculoskeletal pain. So some of you may be well aware of prolotherapy. And prolotherapy is a treatment where dextrose is injected multiple times into ligamentous structures where there's been chronic pain. The SI joint is a favorite one and um, repetitive injections we believe create inflammation, scarring of the ligament that then provides some stability and pain relief. And um, actually there's a very well done randomized controlled trial by Kim in 2010 that showed prolotherapy to the SI joint was superior compared to corticosteroid injection. And a separate paper also looking at this. So although it seems like complementary or alternative medicine, there's actually growing evidence that's showing for SI joint pain in particular that uh, prolotherapy is probably helpful for more long-term relief. Radiofrequency ablation, I'm sure you're familiar with this. but a lot of people using it for chronic SI joint pain where a current is applied with either heat or cold uh, to the uh, lateral pelvic nerves that actually Uh, innervate the sacroiliac joint, and it looks like, and just this paper literally came out a week ago um, by some of my colleagues in PM&R, that there is good short-term benefit, but again, not long-term benefit. So you think of this idea, and patients come in and say, oh, burn my nerves, and then I won't have pain anymore, but we're doing that without long-term relief. Another acupuncture study showing benefit for postpartum women with pelvic girdle pain, and then we talked about this last night, um, so I wanted to make sure that we understand that SI joint fusion in the past was never thought to be helpful. A fairly large study that was done in Europe showed no improvements in pain and disability, but with some of the newer um, techniques in SI joint fusion, there is some evidence that's suggesting that it actually is helpful, perhaps. And so this recent paper in 2016 randomized patients to either fusion or non-surgical care, and the fusion actually at a two-year mark, interestingly, had a little bit more improvement than than the non-surgical approach. And then, of course, psychologic therapies. I think, as we know, in any chronic pain patient, pelvic girdle or musculoskeletal pain, no different. But this is a paper that supported psychologic intervention for that. So I gave you a lot of information. I'm happy to stand up here and continue to answer questions. But pelvic girdle or musculoskeletal pain is very common, right? At least 20% prevalence. Doesn't matter if they're pregnant or not pregnant. And we have a job to do to either rule in or rule out lumbar, spine, hip, other things that could be impacting the pelvic girdle. We need to keep a broad musculoskeletal differential diagnosis. Let's not blame the piriformis or the pelvic floor on everything. Let's keep it, keep, keep it open so we have opportunity to treat multiple things. I showed you those specific physical exam tests. They're great. They're not hard to do. Um, hopefully more of us can learn how to do it, and we can even introduce that into perhaps some didactic where we could teach it here. The treatment is multifactorial, as I I showed you, but the mainstay of treatment is probably physical therapy just in general across the board for both pelvic floor and pelvic stabilization. Um, And pelvic floor muscles are a part of pelvic girdle pain. So in our chronic pelvic pain patients that have pelvic floor myofascial pain, please think of um, those musculoskeletal targets as well. So thank you so much for your time and attention. I'm happy to take questions if you have any. Thank you. Or if you want, yes. Thank you, Doctor. connection childhood and Yes. So I know I didn't get into PRP because I feel like that's a whole separate lecture. My colleagues in PM&R are definitely using PRP across the board, but again, um, limited data for pelvic girdle, I would say for PRP, but people are doing it. for trauma, we know a recent paper came out from the MAP network uh, in patients who have interstitial cystitis and other of those overlapping pain core morbidities, and they showed that there was a significant history of sexual abuse or sexual trauma or early childhood childhood adverse events that are risk factors for the development of pelvic pain. My colleagues at UNC had studied that for years, um, and and so that's that's also and depends on what prevalence study you look at, but but fairly significant prevalence rates for, yes, that history, that's a risk factor for pelvic pains. So that's a great question. I don't know if Dr. Lambu will get into that in her talk, but okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that um, prolotherapy has done a lot for, for those patients. Is there a different type of injection you're speaking about, or? Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I, I think, um, It it again speaks to the hypermobility does not necessarily mean there's pain. Um, And so I think looking at other musculoskeletal targets, a lot of those patients have myofascial pain. We have a colleague, Dr. Cholimsky, who's at um, Wisconsin um, in Milwaukee, who's really studying this extensively. So I think that's gonna be very helpful. He'll provide us some more data. But as far as injections, I think the jury is still out with that population to my knowledge. Yes. No, no, and I mean, if you look at the data, no adverse events at all, except that in the States, everyone is very concerned about using it. I have a hard time um, getting our colleagues that are in the acupuncture clinics to do it, but we have um, many who will, um, and I would say that the other issue is the cost you know, for our patient population, so, yes. Ah, great question. I don't think anyone would use it. When I talk to my colleagues in high-risk or maternal fetal medicine, they do not like any type of stem used um, in pregnancy, so postpartum. We just actually completed a study, which I didn't pr- um, show here, but we looked at electroacupuncture with one of my colleagues in urology for painful bladder, and it was really interesting. So we did electroacupuncture. Um, in specific meridians for pelvic pain compared to a sham electroacupuncture. And what we found is that the patients who had the electroacupuncture with the right protocol, actually at least what we hypothesized would be more pelvic specific, actually responded more significantly in terms of their pain. But the really cool thing is their pelvic floor muscle exam improved. So we actually, hopefully, that that uh, paper will come out soon. But we didn't touch the pelvic floor, but we actually used acupuncture, and the muscular exam improved in terms of tenderness and function. So kind of exciting that maybe we don't have to go directly to the muscles to treat them. So, all right. Thanks, everyone.